This is our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study in the book of Galatians. Today, we will be looking at Galatians 3, 26 through 29, a small section that talks about what we have in Christ compared to the law. If you have been studying the book of Galatians with us, then you know that Paul has been talking a lot about the law, the shortcomings of the law, what the law can't do, what the law was meant to do, and that a lot of people put way too much trust in the law. And so he's now going to switch and begin to talk about what we have in Christ as opposed to what we have in the law. Let me just give you a few examples of the kind of statements that he made earlier in this chapter in what I've called the theological section of the book of Galatians. In Galatians 3.3, he said, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you think you can be made perfect in the flesh? You think by doing some work of the law, you're going to be made perfect when everything began in the Spirit? In Galatians 3.7, he says, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So if you're trying to make your way to heaven by keeping some law, by keeping some rule, you're not a son of Abraham. It's only by faith because Abraham came by faith. He says in 3.11, Galatians 3.11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. I love that. No one's justified, it's evident. It's not even an arguing point. For the just shall live by faith. Then he quotes that great passage out of Habakkuk. In Galatians 3.13, he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs, hangs on a tree. If you kept the law, there were great blessings. And if you go to Deuteronomy, I think it's 27 and 28, and you read the blessings, it's like, well, I want that. I, I want, that's great. The, if you could live the law, you would be greatly blessed. But we've learned that no one can keep the law. You've got to keep it in its entire totality. And so you ended up being under a curse in the law instead of a blessing under the law because they weren't keeping it and their hearts became bad. And that was the worst part. And so Jesus became a curse for us on the cross to set us free from any curses. So if you think you're, you think you're just a cursed person, my mom used to say to me when a series of things would go bad, she said to me, Robert, you're snake bit. And it's like, no, I'm not snake bit. But I know what she meant, right? If you think you're under a curse, you're not. You are under a blessing because we are now under grace and not under law. If you could work for the things that the, the law promised and keep it, it would have been great. In Galatians 4, uh, 3, 24 and 25, uh, more just ideas of what he's been talking about here in this theological section. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we no longer need the tutor. So 1,800 years before Christ, God gave Abraham a promise that, that through his descendants, there was gonna come the Messiah, Christ. 400 years after that, he gave the law to keep them until the time of Christ. Then the Messiah came, and now we serve, we live for him, we follow him by faith. And now he turns to the, the contrast of what it means to live in Christ. Let's read the passage first, and then we'll take some time to break it down. Verses 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. If you're walking by faith. So the first thing that we learn is in Galatians 3, 6, and that is that we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things that happens to you when you are born again is that God begins to transform you. Jesus said you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you are born of the flesh. I like to say I know that because I see you. But have you been born again in the spirit? And if you're born again in the spirit, then you begin to live a spirit centric life. And when a Christian lives a flesh centric life, that's, a, that's problematic. You end up reaping from the flesh. But as Christians, we want to live by our spirits and we want to live interacting with God's spirit. And that's part of the transformation that takes place. And part of this transformation is that we now become children of God. When I was in Sunday school in the United Methodist Church, we used to sing a song about all of us being God's children. We're all, everyone is God's children. Uh, a little bit later on, I learned that that's not really true. We are God's creation. And if you want to say in that sense, we are all offspring of God or we are all children of God, that is true. But when it comes to being his heir, being his child, you have to be born again. If you're not born again, you're not. The Bible tells us in uh, first, uh, well, the Bible tells us in, let's see if I got it here. My Bible tells us in, I quote it all the time, I should know it, John 1, 12, that as many as receive him, he gives you the power or the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So that's one of the transformation that takes place. Let's talk briefly about some of these other transformations that happen when we come to Christ. What happens to you when you become a Christian? What kind of things change? First of all, you become a child of God which means, and in the Lord's Prayer, we were taught to pray, our Father in heaven. You have a Father who is now in heaven that sees things from a heavenly perspective, that sees things from an eternal perspective. We see things from an earthly perspective. We see things from a temporary perspective. And we're talking to God who sees things from eternity and from the heavenly perspective. And we're giving him counsel on how he should help us. Lord, could you do this for me? Could you do that for me? And Jesus says, when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A submission to our Father in heaven who sees things much better than we do, who loves us, Jesus said. Look how he takes care of the birds. Look how he takes care of the lilies. And your heavenly Father loves you more than them. And he cares for you more than they do. So we have a heavenly Father. The second thing that happens, and this is obvious, our sins are forgiven. When we are born again, when that spirit comes to life, we are regenerated and our sins are forgiven. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love those two phrases. He's faithful to forgive you and he's just. If you need forgiveness tonight, all you need do is ask him. Go to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll tell you what my prayer is like often. Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want that. I mean, I wanted it, but I don't want it. And you guys know what that's like, right? You're just trying to be honest with God and you're like, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. And I, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I don't want to do that. 
you know, and, and you just, and that's the kind of thing God wants, a broken and a contrite heart. God knows that the flesh struggles, that the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so we have our sins forgiven when we become a Christian, and then we keep our feet washed as we walk in this world with Christ. The second thing that happens, or the third thing that happens, is that the Spirit of God indwells you. When you are born again, God's Spirit actually moves into your life. Jesus told the disciples on, in the upper room, the, the, I'm going to send you another helper. He is with you, and he is going to be in you. And then at the end of the book of John, John 20, he breathes on them. Think about what an odd moment that must have been. The disciples are sitting around. This is the resurrected Lord. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I assume they received the Holy Spirit. I think this is their salvation moment. They're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's a transition taking place and they receive the Holy Spirit. They've yet to have the baptism of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. But they have the Holy Spirit inside of them at this point. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, the word baptized is an interesting word, and it's in our text, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. But the word baptized simply means to be immersed. It doesn't necessarily mean going under the water and coming out. We say, have you been baptized? And we could say, well, what do you mean by that? Was I, I, was, I was immersed into the body of Christ the moment that I was saved. I was baptized by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. I became a part of the body of Christ by the Spirit immersing me in Christ, by baptizing me in Christ. Listen to it again. For this is 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit, we were baptized into one body whether Jew or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. So all of us partake of the spirit of God and we have all been baptized into Christ at the moment that we were born again. We would then be baptized by water. This is something that Christians should do. And if you haven't done it since you've made a commitment to Christ, since you've been immersed into the body of Christ, have you been immersed in water as a symbol of, of death and resurrection? And then there's another baptism I'll talk about here in just a little while. The next is that you are given righteousness. This is a little bit different than just being forgiven of your sins. The fact that the moment that I'm born again, the moment he forgives me, all my sins are gone and I stand before him with the righteousness of Robert Furrow. But the righteousness of Robert Furrow is not very good. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. This is such a powerful point. God interacts with you, not based on your righteousness, which is one thing, but based on the righteousness of Christ, which is another. In theology, we call this the imputed righteousness of Christ, that his righteousness is placed inside of you so that when God sees you, he doesn't see a cleaned up version of yourself. He sees and operates in your life based upon the righteousness of Christ inside of you. So what is there that God will not do for you? God said, Paul said he didn't withhold his son. Will he not do all things for you? God works in your life based upon the righteousness of Christ. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 
For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He experienced something he never knew, sin, so that we could experience something we never knew, righteousness. So when we are born again, we are given righteousness. The next thing that transforms, that changes when we're saved, is that sin is not to have dominion over us. Sin is no, to no longer rule you. When we're in the world, we're ruled by our flesh, and sin has dominion over us. And some of us, that has become, come out of control. Some of you guys are like um, functional addicts when it comes to sin. You were before you came to Christ. You did okay in your life. Your life was okay. But sin still had dominion over you. Then you come to Christ and he sets you free. Listen to what it says in Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under the law, but under grace. Sin is not to rule your life. Doesn't mean we don't sin. Because the Bible says in John, well, 1 John 1, 4, that if we say we don't have any sin, we're a liar. So we know we struggle with sin. However, it's not to rule you. There's a difference between struggling and sinning and asking for repentance and being, having sin have dominion in your life. We are not to live with sin as dominion. I, I, I've used the analogy before. Some of us harbor sin in our lives. We just bring it up and dock it. It's like, there it is. I've got sin and praise God for his grace. And that's problematic in a lot of different ways. Struggling is one thing and all of us are going to struggle. All of us are going to, you know, somebody does something, that anger, flash of anger comes in, the, the lust comes in, whatever it is, and you repent and you move on. But when you harbor something in your life, then sin has dominion over you and God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And this is not what God wants for us. The, the, the sixth thing is that you want to please Christ. When you become a Christian, when you're born again, suddenly you want to please him. I remember this as being one of the changes that happened to me when I was 14 years old and I gave my life to Christ. I did not, I wanted to do what 14-year-old what Robert wanted to do before I got saved. And then suddenly I want to do what God wants me to do. Not only does, did Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it says in 1 John 2, 4 and 5, he who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. So if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a born-again Christian, I just don't want to do what God wants me to do. That's beyond problematic. That's kind of like a sign to you that you are not in the right place. I'm not saying you're not saved, but I'm saying you should look at it and consider it. If you're like, I'm a Christian, I just don't want to do what God wants me to do. There, 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 there's a real problem. Listen to what it goes on to say. It says, um, and does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. So it's kind of like a double whammy. He's a liar and the truth ain't in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know we are in him. So when you say, how do I know that I'm genuinely saved? How do I know I'm in Christ? Do you want to do what God wants you to do? Doesn't mean you always do it. Doesn't mean you don't fail. But do you want to do what God wants you to do? By this, you know that you are in him. If you say, well, no, I don't. Well, then maybe it's time to, to look at whether or not you've made a real genuine commitment to Christ. There are people that think that they do. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Some people are going to come and say, we did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. The last thing you want is to think you have a relationship with God when you don't really have a relationship with him. And so this is the sign God's given you so that you can know whether or not you are genuinely saved if you want to keep his commandments. And really, if you keep them, that's the sign. Doesn't mean you keep them always, right? Because if anybody says they have no sin, they're a liar. So you've got, that's the same book, by the way. It's just one chapter later. So you've got to balance, they've got to take it in context and understand it. But the problem is, if you're saying, I don't want to do what God wants me to do, but I'm a Christian and I've heard a lot of that. I've heard a lot of it. People have tried to justify a lot of different sins by saying, I know I'm doing this, but I just want you to know that I love God more than I ever have. It's like, not so sure that you would be doing that if you loved him now more than you ever did. It's more of an excuse of trying to like, you're, you're doing what you want to do and you're like, okay, I'm okay. I'm doing this sinful thing, but I'm okay because I love Jesus. I'm spiritual. If you're really spiritual, then you wouldn't be doing the thing that is against Christ or again, not what God wants you to do. Um, and finally, you have a new relationship with the word of God. God's word becomes precious to you. Now that you've got a spirit that has come to life, then that spirit needs to grow. You feed your body food, hopefully good food. I was having a conversation with Marty earlier about food, eating, you know, what kind of food we're eating. You get older, it matters. When you're younger, I think I was 100, I, I'm 5'11". I'm I think I was 125 pounds when I got married. I could literally eat pizza all day and never gain a pound. So nutrition has become very important to me as I get older. Now, spiritual nutrition is extremely important to be able to grow. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word of God that you may grow thereby. In Hebrews, he says that you should be eating solid food, desiring the milk and the meat of the word of God, but you have need of someone feeding you again. So he was frustrated with the, the, his, his audience in the book of Hebrews that they weren't at a maturity level that they should have been. They should have been to a place where they were eating solid food, where they were eating the meat of the word, not just the milk of the word, but they weren't. And so then those are, those are just a, a handful of the things. By the way, when I started writing out a list of all of the things that change and wanting to find scriptures that connected to them, the list was way too long. So I stuck with seven. I was like, I'm doing seven of them and I'm out. But um, there's a lot more things that change when we become Christians that God does for us and within us. Now, he, he continues to talk about the life of, of by faith now. So if, if you are living by faith, then you become a child of God. That's verse 26. And then in verse 27, he says, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is very similar to the passage we read out of Corinthians where you are baptized by the Spirit into the family of God. We are baptized into one body through the Spirit. Just because it says baptism here doesn't mean it's water baptism. And I probably should talk a little bit about baptismal regeneration at this point. If you don't know what that term is, take a note. Baptismal regeneration. There are people that believe that faith in Christ is only the starting point. And the miracle of regeneration happens when you are baptized. And then you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit right after you're baptized. That's baptismal regeneration. But we know it's not true 
because the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And water baptism would be a work. We want to be water baptized because Jesus told us to. Paul said that we should be baptized and we should. But it's important to understand that that's not the same connection. In fact, let me see if I've got this here. Yeah, in um, 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says this about baptism. He says, I thank God that I have baptized no one except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that they had baptized in his, that I had baptized in his own name. And I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Now, first of all, I love that Paul says, I didn't baptize any of you except this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. Oh yeah, and that family. But other than that, I don't know if I baptized any of you. So Paul didn't make it his goal to be baptizing people. He, other people were baptizing for sure. But then he says this, and this separates baptism from the gospel. If you were regen, if the miracle of regeneration happened when you were baptized, then that would be the gospel. Go and be baptized and, and then be saved. Believe and be baptized and be saved. And so it goes on to say here, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Do you see how he separated baptism from preaching the gospel? If baptism were part of the gospel, if the miracle of regeneration happened at baptism, he would have never said that. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. If it was part of the gospel, he would have said, Christ sent me to baptize and fulfill the gospel. But he puts a distinction, a separation from it. And in fact, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says this about the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so again, not the gospel doesn't have baptism in it. And you've got this enormous body of work in the New Testament. I literally could go to scripture after scripture after scripture that talks about believing by faith. And then you have a passage in Acts which says, believe and be baptized for the remission of sins. And people go, well, that's it. Then you've got to be baptized. I want to read that verse to you. This is the verse they use, one of the verses, probably their strongest verses. There is a verse that says, talking about Noah's Ark, and then says there's an anti-type which saves us, like the Ark saved um, Noah. There's an anti-type that saves us, and that's baptism. But remember, baptism isn't necessarily water baptism, but there's an immersion into Christ. And so which baptism is he talking about to be saved? So there's that verse that causes people to go, well, maybe we should be, we're saved by baptism because there's an anti-type which now saves us baptism. Well, this is probably their strongest verse. And this is Acts 2, 38. Then Peter said to them, this is the sermon on the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church, day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So this is the verse that they build, that you go out, you believe, and then you're baptized. That's the salvation. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon you afterwards, because that's what Peter said here. But the word for, and you can look this up yourself. Sometimes people play fast and loose with Greek words, okay? They want to get their point across, so they, they play fast and loose. But you can check this out for yourself. When it says, uh, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, that word for in the Greek 
and translations do translate it this way, could be translated because of. In other words, it could read, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus because of the remission of sins. In fact, let me read you the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible takes the words that are there and they amplify the words within the text. It can be helpful on word studies. I don't know that it's that helpful in just reading through the Bible, but when you want to know what exactly do these words mean, the Amplified Bible can be helpful. And so here's the Amplified Bible, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, repent. Then it gives us the meaning of repent. Change your old way of thinking. Turn from sinful ways. Accept and follow Jesus as the Messiah. So you see how they did that? They just took out one word, repent. Then they laid out what repentance is. And then it says, and be baptized each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. So the, the Amplified Bible, as well as some other versions, translate the word because, because the word in the Greek could either be because or for. So you have all these passages that say you're saved by faith and you're not saved by works. You have all these passages that say believe and you will be saved. I mean, a plethora of them. And you've got one passage that says this, but also can be translated in another way. You don't take one passage that's a little cloudy and, and throw away the entire body of what the scriptures say about being saved by faith to say that baptismal regeneration is true. There are a lot of groups that believe in baptismal regeneration. It's not just the Church of Christ or the Seventh-day Adventists who do. There are other churches, the Anglican Church, uh, some of the Orthodox churches believe in baptismal regeneration as well. So it is a major issue. And this is one of the verses that they use out of Galatians. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But this is the baptism that happens when you become a Christian, when you are baptized into Christ, you are brought into him. You're immersed in him. Again, the word, the word baptism doesn't just mean being baptized in water. It means to be immersed. All right. Um, so uh, Galatians uh, th um, 3.27 again, for as many as you are baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Uh, John said, Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. John the Baptist. There comes one after me. I'm not worthy to, to, to unloose his sandals and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. So Jesus is gonna come and baptize us. And there are three, I believe, okay? This is debated. So I need to, to, to say that. I believe there are three baptisms in the life of a believer. There is the baptism into Christ, which happens the moment you're saved. Which means that you have the Holy Spirit. I need to figure out how to turn that off on my watch so it doesn't start answering me. Why is it answering me while I'm preaching? Um, okay, there's, there's, there's baptism into the body of Christ. And then you have the Spirit. You generally, everybody who's saved has the Holy Spirit. I attended a Pentecostal church when I was 15 years old, a charismatic church after that. I attended a four-square church. Once I came back to Christ, all of them were Pentecostal churches. And they would say things like, we're a spirit-filled church and this, that Baptist church down the street doesn't have the Holy Spirit. That just wasn't a true statement. They, don't, they might not believe in the empowering of the Spirit today, but they have the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they couldn't be Christian. Every genuine Christian has the Holy Spirit the moment he is regenerated. The second is water baptism. And again, we, we need to do that. You're going under the water as a symbol of the old man, the old woman dying. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. 
coming up out of the water is a symbol of the resurrected new life you are now living for Christ. And then there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I use that term because John used it for Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, he could mean the baptism into Christ at regeneration when we're saved. But I think that there's something different. Listen to what Jesus says in John 1, 5. Jesus says this, For John truly baptized you in water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, follow me on this. If the disciples are saved when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, then what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit is poured down upon them? It's a second experience in the Holy Spirit. And I say that because there are people who will say there's, there's no second experience of the Holy Spirit. There's no baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are baptized certainly into Christ when we're born again. But listen to this passage out of Acts 8, 14 through 17. The area of Samaria received the gospel through the preaching of Philip, the deacon. And uh, this is the area Jesus went to minister to the woman at the well, right? Samaria. And so in, in verse 14 of Acts 8, it says, And when the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, these people were genuinely saved. It says in verse 12 that they received the gospel when, when uh, Philip preached it and were baptized. They believed and were baptized and now, when Peter and John show up, they pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. It says, for as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. The Holy Spirit had to be in them the moment they were born again, because everyone has the Holy Spirit then. But Peter and John go down and see that they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. And so they lay hands on them, pray for them, because he had not fallen upon any of them. And then it says this, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus talking about this experience of receiving the Holy Spirit after their salvation, being empowered by the Spirit, whatever you want to call it, receiving, overflowing, filled with, uh, upon, whatever you want to call it. He says they'd only been baptized in the name of Jesus, referring to that experience. That's why when people say the, the baptism of the Spirit isn't a second experience, I always go, eh. This verse gives me pause to make a strong statement like that. I don't know where you hear the term in the Bible, the baptism of the Holy Spirit spoken of as a second experience, but this sure seems like it. It's at least a reference to it. And even if the term baptism of the Holy Spirit speaks of the regeneration and not the empowering, it doesn't mean there's not an empowering. That the Holy Spirit can't come upon you and gift you and empower you. Jesus said to the disciples who were already saved, tarry here in Jerusalem, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. There's also another event in Acts 19 where some disciples of John, but they've been baptized into John, get saved, and they are saved, baptized, and then prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit. So again, we see that the Holy Spirit can be a second experience. So do I believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes, I do. I believe in a second experience to empower you. And, and Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? 
So ask to be empowered. Ask to be filled. Ask for help to, to witness, to share your life. I don't not only believe in a second experience, I believe in a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. In chapter four, the room that they're in once again is shaken and they're, they're filled with the Holy, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Same group of people that had it in Acts chapter two. And then it happens again later on in Acts and again later on in Acts. So the Holy Spirit continues to empower us. I do like the term overflowing or baptized in the Spirit because it's the idea of being immersed in the Spirit. It's like we're in Christ by the Spirit, baptized into Christ, and then we're baptized by the Spirit and it's overflowing. And that it continues to overflow in our lives. It's like a continual empowering in our lives. So um, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, talking about who we are in faith in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ. There's no difference between us. We all stand the same. We who are not a people have become a people for Christ. And there is an equality to all of us. By the way, that's with leaders too. There's an equality between those who are leaders and those who are not leaders. There's an equality all the way around of who we are in Christ because Christ is sufficient for everything. The Bible helps us to really understand that there is unity with all believers. John 13, 34 and 35 says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. In Ephesians 4, 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake forgave you. We stand equal before God, even though there might be authority roles that are different, authority roles that are God-given. And I always use the example of the military here. You could have a general and you could have an admiral and you could have a private. And the private's going to do what the admiral says and the admiral's going to do what the general says. But the private may be a much better person than the admiral and the general. It doesn't say anything about the kind of person that they are by the rank that they hold. It's simply an authority level that makes the military work. It's something they brought in to make it work. And so God has done the same within the church. And that's important for us to understand. Romans 2, 10 and 11 says, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God doesn't hear my prayers any more than he hears your prayers. God doesn't go, Oh, Robert's asking? God might go, Robert's asking, for all we know. That your prayer is every bit as powerful as Billy Graham's prayer was because there's no partiality with God. This is a pretty incredible thing that happens to us when we're born again. He brings us in and he brings equality. The world doesn't have anything like that. The world can't bring equality into everyone. They just don't have the structure to be able to do it but God brings equality in all, into all of our lives as believers. And we go, all go boldly before the throne of God, which is very powerful. The final thing that he says is in verse 29, and that is, and if you are Christ's, you then are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So now if you're in Christ, you are a child of God, you are 
baptized into the family of God. There's this great equality that we have in the body of Christ that wasn't in Israel, by the way. And we have the spirit, which people in Israel, only leaders had the spirit. We have the spirit poured upon all of us. And now finally, we are heirs. An heir doesn't do anything to be an heir. You didn't get to pick your family. If you're, if you're in a rich family and you're an heir and you're kind of waiting for mom and dad to, hopefully that's not the case, but it is the case sometimes, right? Well, then you didn't choose that. You didn't tell God, God, let me be born into a rich family so I can be an heir, you know, get, get a lot of stuff. But we have been adopted into a family of God and we have become heirs in Christ. The Bible tells us everything that Christ has is ours. To the Corinthians, he wrote, you have everything. We have everything. We, we say to God, I don't have anything, God. God's like, accept everything. If you only knew all that you have, if you just wait, you have it all. Everything. Just one thought in closing. You have put on Christ. It is no longer you that live, but it is Christ that lives in you. Now that we have by faith trusted in him and inherited the promise that God gave to Abraham, that through the Messiah, the entire world would be blessed. And we've called on the name of the Messiah. Let us live our lives now, not for ourselves, not under the dominion, the, the, the kingship of sin, but under the lordship of Jesus Christ, allowing God to use us to touch the lives of people around us. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we take time to look at this little passage and consider what we have in Christ, who we are in you who believe. That had we been able to keep the law, there would have been a lot of great things that would have happened. However, we weren't adopted as your sons and daughters. We didn't receive the Spirit, even if we kept the law. We don't have that incredible unity and equality and non-partiality under the law. All of these things are unique to faith. And Lord, we're so thankful that we are not earning our salvation, that it's not payment, but that it's by grace. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.